Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to News Talk's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact about our last episode, looking at the changing trends in urban living. You can still listen back to the podcast on our website at newstalk.com or as always, you can download the podcast on our app on the Go Loud app. And you can get in touch with us today by emailing between the lines at newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself at Andrea Gilligan. Well, coming up today, we'll be asking how do we make it easier and safer to shop, to trade and for transport around our city centres post-COVID-19? What about pedestrians? cyclists and those using public transport and also the business community in our country cities. We have the government's back to work safety protocols that have been announced and the companies are now trying to figure out how to get their staff back into work and also their customers. We'll look at transport a little bit later in the programme but now we'll turn our attention to how the retail landscape has changed in our cities and we'll start with the capital. Graeme McQueen is the Head of Communications at Dublin Chamber of Commerce. First of all Graeme I mean, a really unprecedented time, first of all, for the um, for the entire retail sector across Dublin. Yeah, absolutely, Andrea. I think, you know, retail from time to time do get disturbances. They do get outages. We see storms and, uh, you know, big falls of snow and things like that that cause a short-term impact. But this, for most retailers in Dublin, they've never seen anything like this. It's been a massive kind of adjustment period for them. They've had to learn and change very quickly. Um, I suppose the eyes now are starting to turn to when they can reopen. For the most part, that still is a a bit of an unknown. We do have the government plan there with dates, uh, you know, when people might be able to reopen. But I think the expectation is that those dates are going to change depending on what happens with the COVID-19 numbers and as well depending on what happens just in the general landscape of society. And just give us an outline about the impact that COVID-19, first of all, Graham, has had on businesses in Dublin. It's been massive. So, you know, you take it even the way people work. So we represent 1,300 companies in Dublin. When we've surveyed them over the last couple of weeks, they've got around 90% of staff on average working from home. So before this crisis, I mean, that level would have been somewhere down the low percentages, maybe 10, 15% at maximum. So that's a massive adjustment they've had to make in the way people work. Then if you look at something like a cafe or a shop, I mean, a lot of shops have just had to simply close. Some of them have been able to sell online. Others have had to scramble to get online quite quickly. We've been working hard in the chamber to try and help companies with that type of thing. And then you see cafes. I think we've all seen local cafes, you know, adjust to the period. So they maybe closed down to begin with. They had to lay off staff. They had to cancel all their supplies. They've still got the, the bills coming in, though, so they're trying to get money in. So as time has gone on, they've looked to do things like introduce takeaway services and things like that just to just to get up and running in some form and to get some kind of money coming into the business. Um, but I think a lot of them are now looking to, to get back up and running fully. But how long that's going to take, you know, it's going to take some time for a lot of them to get back to any kind of normal as we knew it before all this happened. What's been the financial cost of all of this, Graham? It's massive. It's massive. It's, it's, it's hard to quantify it really for a lot of firms, but I mean, revenues are way, way down. Uh, they were way, way down from early on as well. So um, I think a lot of them are trying to get some money in now, you know, just making changes to the way they work. 
I think a lot of them are using it as a time to plan better for how they're going to reopen, what services are they going to offer. There's probably a lot of them been looking at things that are, you know, putting things on the long finger. And maybe, maybe you like selling online, for example. They want to get a website that will allow them to sell uh, over the web, but they've just not had time or, you know, the, 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 the space to, to look at that type of thing. So if the one advantage to this time, it is that companies can maybe reimagine uh, what they do and how they do it. Uh, so that might be one positive for the long term. In terms of the kind of um, adaption or the adaptation that a lot of businesses would have to do, like for a lot of those in the retail sector, they've been able to, you talked about that kind of the online shopping and even some of the, you know, the cafe shops, the restaurants, they've even moved into the delivery area as well. But for some industries and some businesses, Graham, that hasn't been possible. No, not at all. There are a lot of businesses out there that are just sitting still at the moment. They can't do anything until restrictions are lifted and until they can get people back in. Um, you know, but a lot of them are trying to innovate. You know, business people by their nature don't like sitting still. They like to keep progressing and things like that. So I think we'll see a lot of companies coming back possibly a little bit different from the way we worked before. Um, you know, even you look at the way the makeup of our retail stores and things like that, I think people have had to change to create more room, for example, in supermarkets and convenience stores. And so this will probably change the makeup and the look and feel of a lot of businesses for a long time to come. Now, what's the the actual ramifications and the knock-on effect of trying to introduce the back-to-work, the safety protocol, that those guidelines and that guidance that's been issued from the government, Graham? Yeah, well, there's probably, I mean, it's, it's been a, you know, it's a tough one to take on for a lot of businesses, number one, because, you know, it's complex. They have to make a lot of changes. So you take a standard office uh, that maybe has 10 people working in a certain space, that's got to change now. People are having to be further apart. So that means bringing in perspex screens. It means, you know, changing the, the washing facilities in the building, maybe changing the toilet facilities, bringing in the, you know, hand sanitizers and things like that. They're very kind of small things, but they all add up. They're very expensive. I mean, you look at an office maybe with 25, 30 people in it, you're probably looking at tens of thousands of euros to get that business back up and running, you know, to get people back into the office. So, I mean, I think what we're going to see here is people will come back uh, when they can and when they have to, but you're still going to see a lot of people working from home in all sectors, uh, you know, looking beyond the summer into the autumn. I think you're going to see a lot of people still, you know, working remotely. And so it's another change that we're probably going to see in the business landscape for a long time to come. And how are the businesses adapting to these new protocols? I mean, I know for a lot of them, they're only going to be at the in a position to open in the latter stages of the roadmap plan. But I'm sure a lot of them are trying to put those sort of the preparations in place now. Yeah, exactly. I think that was one of the one of the good things about the government producing the roadmap when they did is it, is it gave people a line in the sand that they could aim for. So like a hairdresser, for example, knows that they're not going to be able to open until July, but they've got time now to put the, you know, the processes and to bring in the things that they need uh, to open their business. And for other sectors, it's been, you know, it's been more kind of off, off the cuff. You know, you look at pharmacies, look at supermarkets and things like that. They had to adjust very, very quickly and they've had to keep doing that. So they'd already made the adjustment to stay open in the first two months. And, the, the, you know, the reopening map came along with new guidelines in the protocol. So they're having to make changes again. So it's going to be continual changes as we go along this. I think we'll, we'll probably learn from each other in the business community about things that people have been able to do um, and hopefully learning from peers and things like that, which we'll be trying to facilitate in the chamber. You know, hopefully that will help reduce costs of these changes as well for firms. I know for a lot of businesses, Graeme, they're, they're trying to 
to figure out how many people they're actually allowed in their premises. Um, you know, if it's X square meters in or in terms of the, the, the footage, the size of the of the property, how do they go about figuring out how many between staff and customers they can they can actually allow in? Yeah, it's tough and it depends very much on, on the type of business. I mean, you look at golf clubs have reopened this week, for example. Normally, you know, it would be a bit of a free-for-all when you went into the shop at your local golf course. At the moment, most of them have got sort of a one-in, one-out system. Then you look at, you know, the restaurants and stuff like that. Like, how are they going to adapt to this? Like, you know, they're normally thriving kind of places where people are kind of bumping off the back of chairs and things like that. And that whole business model in the restaurant is based on getting a certain number of people in, selling a certain number of dishes every day to make it make it viable. So these are all things that are going to have to change. You know, and look at the pub sector as well. Again, these places are normally packed, and the whole business model is set up around having that type of that type of activity, those those level of numbers. So once you start changing the number of people that could come in on a day or a, or a week or whatever it might be, that changes what's possible for that business long term. So I think we're going to have to see a lot of changes. Hopefully it doesn't, but possibly it will mean price rises as well. Who knows? I think we're going to have to wait and see on those types of aspects as, as time goes on. And who will decide that as to whether there will be a price rise? Well, it'll, it'll come down to the business. I mean, the business will do whatever it takes, I guess, to be economically viable and to make it work. Um, we, we think there will be some adjustment in what the government has laid out in the protocol. I think that protocol will be a living document as this goes on. We would expect that to keep being updated as, as, as the months sort of progress. Um, but ultimately, the business will have to do whatever it takes to, to be able to remain viable. Um, and look, you know, the customer will then decide whether that's a, a product or a service that they're willing to to pay for and avail of. Now, just talking of customers, I, I know one of the big concerns that a lot of businesses and business people have is how do you inspire that confidence to get customers back into your shop or your coffee shop or your premises or your business, whatever it is. Like, I know there will be a cohort of people, Graham, listening today who, you know, the minute their favourite restaurant or clothes shop or whatever it is, pub reopens, you know, they'll be there in a flash. But for other people, there will just be that, you know, they'll be thinking about it. There'll be questions asked. And, and I know business people are concerned about trying to instill that confidence now in consumers yeah well i think i mean consumers have been have been shaken really i think all all of us as people have been shaken by what's happened i think it's led us to question you know how we walk around the park how close we get to people when we're, when we're in the shop or even where we park in a car park i mean there's a lot of things have changed for us and i suppose a lot of it will come down to how much of that stays with us. Like, how quickly will we become move back to what we were before? Um, I think that will dictate, you know, a lot of what 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 retailers and shops and cafes and restaurants do in the future. I mean, I'd love to think we'll get back to pretty close to what we were before in time, but that's certainly not going to happen anytime soon. I think because the, I, mean, I think the impact of COVID has been, you know, it's really made us question a lot about what we do. Um, but winning that confidence back, I mean, look, it'll, it'll come down to shops putting in a very safe environment. It'll come down to restaurants and cafes making it safe and attractive, um, and that will just slowly inspire confidence. I think we've seen it already. I mean, the supermarkets that we're all using at the moment. I mean, they've they've adapted massively. They look very different probably not as much stuff on the floor, for example, to get in our way when we're walking around. So that helps to inspire confidence. I think, uh, you know, when you see the two metre lines outside certain shops and stuff, it makes you 
feel like that company, that business is taking things seriously. So that brings back confidence, and we'll probably see that confidence, uh, you know, eking back into people, hopefully, as time goes on. For those companies that maybe aren't making as much of an effort as they should, I mean, that's another thing, I, another aspect of all of this I, I hear mainly consumers talking about, you know, X shop or Y shop isn't doing as good of a job. Who do they talk to about that? Well, I mean, the, I mean, the government protocol is there. There's lots of their advice from the government. And then they can lean on organisations like Dublin Chamber. I mean, our focus over the last few months has been to run a lot of webinars and advice sessions for companies whereby they can learn from their peers and find out a bit about the changes that other people are, are making. And I think we'll see more of that activity going on. If you look at organisations like ourselves and the other business organisations, we're all coming out with you know, plans and you know, guidelines and uh, you know, suggestions as to what they might look at for their company at this time. So I think we're going to see a lot of peer-to-peer learning. You'll see guidance from the, the government and the relevant authorities and things like that. So that's all very helpful and hopefully that can just help People get up and running that little bit quicker. Now, I know this isn't a Dublin issue. We're just talk, talking to yourself in, in relation to um, the situation in Dublin, Graham. But I mean, around the country, there, there's a lot of companies, I'm sure, or smaller businesses that might start to look at things like, you know, staggered opening hours, or maybe there will be a knock-on effect to the staff that might have might have worked a nine-to-five job in the coffee shop, but maybe now it's going to operate seven to seven or something like that. For employers that maybe have questions now around. Um, the impact of all of this on maybe the employment rights and status of their staff, what's the best advice for them? Yeah, I think HR is, is a massive issue for companies at the moment in terms of you know, even look at you know, if you're going to stay open later at night, if you're going to you know get them to work longer shifts and stuff like that. There are HR implications, you know, that affects uh, you know people's contracts and things like that. So, you know, my advice to the companies would be to get the right HR advice, make sure you're covered just to protect the business, but also to protect the staff as well. I think if there's if there's one thing that's came out of this, it's how companies view and value their staff. I think uh, you know everybody wants to make sure that their staff are looked after. Because ultimately that's going to reflect on the business. You know, people happy where they work is going to impact on what we we're talking about there in terms of consumer confidence. If you go in and the staff are all grumpy, you know, it gives you an impression about that company. So. The more companies can do to, to help their staff get through this, you know, take the right HR advice, speak to the right people, uh, invest in those types of services, and it'll be for the good of the business. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. My thanks to Graham McQueen, who's the Head of Communications at Dublin Chamber of Commerce. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. Well, you're welcome back to the second part of News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We're continuing our discussion today asking how can we make it easier and safer to shop, to trade and for transport around our city centres post-COVID-19? Well, just this week, Dublin City Council said it's looking to double the numbers walking and to triple cycling capacity in the capital as it predicts now an 80% reduction in capacity in public transport in the weeks ahead. It's published its mobility plan this week as businesses start to prepare to reopen to customers. Well, Brian Caulfield is the Associate Professor at the School of Engineering at Trinity College Dublin. Um, Brian, we'll come to a separate report that you published uh, quite recently in a few moments, but this mobility plan that's been announced by Dublin City Council, what can you tell us? What does it entail? So so basically the plan includes a large number of uh, workers getting into the city by walking and cycling and because we'll have less public transport available to us and they don't want there to be a spike in car usage. 
basically what the plan has is a number of routes into the city centre whereby um, cycling and walking will become a priority. Um, they've also outlined plans whereby there would be park and ride, basically park and walk or park and cycle at parts of the city where you would be able to drive into a certain point, park and then walk or cycle into the city centre. And presumably this follows on from um, research recently that showed there's, there's a lot of people quite concerned about how they're going to get to and from work. Yeah, um, we did research recently in Trinity and it showed that about 75% of people were concerned about contracting the, the uh, coronavirus while taking public transport. And this um, kind of research, these kind of results are shown across the world and other cities are doing the exact same thing as Dublin is doing. So this particular mobility plan for people that maybe aren't familiar with it or maybe they didn't hear about it in great detail, there's a number of different aspect, aspects to it. I suppose, first of all, to say it's a joint um, it's a joint initiative between Dublin City Council and the National Transport Authority. But it's looking at things like large-scale bus diversions, there's going to be restrictions on cars, the widespread allocation of road space to pedestrians and cyclists. I mean, this is something that's been talked about, Brian, so often and so frequently time and time again. And yet it's kind of taken this COVID-19 pandemic to to sort of maybe do this on a kind of a trial basis. Yeah, it, it has taken this um, to, to push the council and also to, to, to see the, the, the demand for it. Um, over the past couple of years, 70% of people get into the city centre either by walking, cycling or using public transport. So people prior to this were voting with their, with their feet and with their bikes and their buses. Um, and that has taken this. But the council and the NTA have been planning for this, not in terms of a, a pandemic, but they have been planning for this in terms of the pedestrianisation, the diverting of buses, etc., to do with the College Green Plaza. So they're, they're well equipped to be able to, to enact this plan. So, for instance, they're talking about, you know, once activity returns to the city, the bicycle use is expected to triple, walking to double, car use expected to fall by 30%, public transport due to take an even far bigger hit, usage down by 80%, all due, of course, to the social distancing guidelines. But they've identified four different key routes into the city centre where significant traffic changes will be implemented um, in addition to this kind of creation of a city centre priority zone. Do we have any ideas to where these four routes are, Brian? Um, they haven't been announced yet. I don't think that the, the details of the plan are out there, but you can kind of guess where they're likely to be. They're likely to be to follow the, the main bus routes into the city centre. Um, we're very easy to predict how we travel um, into the city centre, so I suspect they'll be along the, the, the main bus corridors into the city centre, and that's where these park and ride sites will pop up and that's where they expect this this increase to happen in walking and cycling. Mm -hmm. They also concede in the report though that more people will wish to travel by car Um, and they say that while the city centre car parks you know they could remain open alternatives deriving uh, to driving directly into the core were needed. I mean if you can I mean I I would have thought it'd be quite the opposite I would have thought there'd be far more people in their cars. I suspect there will be far more people in their cars, um, and our research has shown that that people um, feel that the car is perhaps one of the safest modes for them at the moment, considering the pandemic. I think that people will be reluctant to use public transport because of, I suppose, if you get into the city centre, it might be one thing, but then to get back out again when the demand is quite high might be another thing, especially when 80% of the capacity of a tram or a cart or a bus will be gone, so it'll be... It'll be very difficult. And considering our public transport network was very congested prior to this, Mm. I do think that people will be more likely to to, to use the car. But hopefully, I suppose that the council and the NTA are planning that 
the the alternative really will be for people to to walk or cycle or indeed to to work from home more often. Yeah, and that's that's an interesting point. I mean, there's a couple of ways you could look at it. Like while you know, for instance, I know that I'm using my car to get to work, which I never did before. Um, but the like we we talk so frequently about people maybe doing a kind of a carpool or a car share. That's something that's unlikely to happen. But at the same time, Brian, you'd think that if we're going to start to allow businesses to reopen on a phased basis, um, not everybody's going to be returning to work at the at the same time or at the one time, and therefore maybe the throughput of people in their cars should actually be lower. Yes, and that's that's what other cities are looking at as well. It's kind of to stagger starting times for, I suppose, universities, big businesses in the city centre, and to kind of like we've been flattening the curve when it comes to cases of of the coronavirus, but we'll need to flatten the curve when it comes to the demand for public transport and road space um, that we don't have everybody travelling at the same time. So businesses could stagger opening times, universities, um, and they could all stagger when people are travelling. So to, to to take the demand away and to enable people to get in and out of the city safely. How key to the um, progress or the future of this plan is that sort of staggered work times? I, I think it's key because if you're taking out 80% of the capacity, say, in the public transport network and over 50% of people use that to travel to work, you will need to, to, to stagger the times in which people are travelling in so that the, the demand isn't there. And it's, it will be the same on the road network. I suppose the people that will be traveling um, in their car on their own there will be a lot a lot more congestion because people see that as the safest way to, to travel but if the times are staggered and schools universities etc are staggered in terms of their opening time then the demand won't be as high at certain points of the day the traditional peak hours that we would have seen between say 7 and 9 a.m mm-hmm. a lot of people have already like a lot of companies have sort of trialed that um at the moment due to the fact that probably you've, you've got maybe people working at home and due to the the childcare situation you've a lot of people where one is working earlier much earlier in the morning and one working to a lot later later at night so that sort of traditional working time of the nine to five has sort of already um, been scrapped yep and we're, we're all learning really quickly to do this and people with kids at home and parents are swapping the times in which they work I know a lot of my friends are, are doing that at the moment and I think we've become very adaptable very quickly and I think that's what they're looking at in terms of the transport network as well is that people will adapt and they will you know they will make smart decisions on when they travel based upon you know risks and also based upon travel times and congestion as to when they will travel in and out of the city. Mm-hmm. With then the likes of bus users, or we, I suppose we could probably predict they're likely to see the largest or the biggest change, Brian, in all of this, with buses maybe being diverted away from College Green in Dublin. But with usage down or predicted to be down by about 80% due to the social distancing requirements now in public transport, would the answer not be to just simply put on more buses? Like, well, you might have less people in them. Do they not just put on more buses and more carriages in the trains and the Lewises? Um, that 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 definitely is an uh, is an option, um, and I suspect that the the timetables that they're currently running will change, and there'll be much higher um, frequency. But um, that would have been the solution prior to COVID nineteen as well. But there wasn't that capacity. There wasn't the extra buses. There wasn't the extra tram space to to get people into the city centre. So prior to this, we were at congested levels of public transport usage. And now that we're taking stripping eighty percent of the people that were using public transport out of it. Um, there isn't that extra capacity just to, to throw on extra buses, I don't think, in, in the short term. Mm-hmm. This idea as well now of operating um, 
car parks outside of you know the kind of main city centre area and allowing people then to commute in is there a role now for those um, a role for the, the bike scheme that we already have in Dublin city centre and in other areas should that be further expanded now during this time? That's one of the things that you could see expanded um, during this period, that there will be more bikes. Um, also, like if you look at the likes of Leaper bikes, they've been quite adaptable because they don't use this fixed station uh, like the Dublin Bike Scheme does. And you've, I've seen data and I've seen maps that their usage has is, is, is skyrocketed. And it's, again, when you look at trends across the world, um, bike share schemes have increased in terms of their demand. Um, and also, when you look at the US, they're predicting to have a shortage of bicycles that they can't make them quick enough um, for people to to transfer over in, in, from their car into onto a bike. What are, what are the the bleeper schemes? The, the bleeper bike scheme basically it's it, it's a, a stationless uh, bike sharing scheme based where you use the bike based upon an app and uh, there's a membership of it, so it's not a fixed location like the Dublin bike scheme. Um, so you could pick up a bike wherever and drop it wherever, providing it's, it's parked legally. Um, and it's much more flexible, I suppose, in the short term than something like Dublin Bikes would be. OK. Um, just in, in terms of the actual rollout of this plan, do we have any indication, Brian, as to when this might um, actually come into force? Um, not that I've seen yet. We don't know when it's likely to, to, to hit, but you can imagine it's going to follow some of the stages in terms of the lifting of restrictions when there's more people likely to be travelling. So you would imagine the plan in the next month or so would start to, to be enacted and the locations for these um, car parks around the city would be would be found. Um, again, this is something that the NTA and the City Council have looked at before. They've looked at these kind of park and ride sites around the city. So they know where they, they, they would have done their homework and they know where these sites are likely to be. Will the public be consulted? Do we know, Brian, on this? Uh, not that I know, but I'd imagine that the plan is, is, is running so fast, I suspect, um, We'll see the implementation stage really quickly and I'm not sure that there would be a public consultation. Okay, so people will just find out more details as to whether or not this is going to go ahead or what's going to happen? I, I, I suspect so. I okay. suspect because they're, they're moving so fast on it um, that it will be enacted and it's also because of the demand that's likely to be there. It's going to happen really quickly, I think, in terms of people going back to work um, um, and that the demand needs to be there and that they need to facilitate people to be able to move into the city. Brian Caulfield, who's the Associate Professor at the School of Engineering at Trinity College Dublin. My thanks to you for joining us on the programme today. Between the Lines on Newstalk. We're continuing our discussion today asking how can we make it easier and safer to shop, to trade and for transport around our city centres post-COVID-19. Well, joining us to get um, her reaction to the report that was announced this week is uh, Green Party councillor and also a former member of the Dublin cycling campaign, Janet Horner. Just Janet, first of all, um, I know we're still waiting to get full details of the plan. We have quite um, some indication as to what's likely to happen. But can you just give us your reaction first of all? Well, I think what we have in the report at the moment is really welcome progress. It is showing what the direction we want to move in at the moment. It's a live document, so they'll still be kind of working out the details of things, um, responding to issues if they arise with the plans as we see them. But what we're looking at is a range of temporary measures across most of the inner city neighbourhoods and the communities there and the, the city centre and the central trading area so that it makes it a lot easier and a lot more comfortable for people to walk around, cycle around, while also respecting social distancing. Um, and the report is basically brings together some hard realities that we're facing at the moment. So we simply don't have the capacity as a city to 
to allow people, it, it isn't safe for people to return to public transport. Um, we're looking at about an 80% reduction in capacity there if we're to respect social distancing. And it's, we don't have the capacity to let all those people who would otherwise be in public transport revert into their cars, or if they have cars and if, they, if that's even an option to them. So what we're trying to do is put forward, these are a range of measures which have been put forward to say this is the only way to get people moving again, to get businesses in the city centre back up and operating again and to give people back access to the city that would otherwise be denied to them. Now, in terms of, um, just from a, a cycling perspective, first of all, Janet, can you outline to us maybe what areas are likely to be impacted here as part of this mobility plan? So I think a lot of, um, I know in my area, for example, Gardner Street, we'd be looking at the changes to improve walking and cycling facilities there. In Fibsborough Village, you're talking about getting dedicated cycle lanes across there um, through Stony Batter, um, and around East Wall as well, you're seeing changes in a lot of how the, the road layout will be. So it'll be simple things. And again, these are temporary measures so as to allow for um, for an improved and safer experience for walking and cycling. So it'll, just, it'll be bollards on the street and it'll be a little bit of extra space that is provided and a little bit less. A lot of the times you're talking about roads where maybe there's two lanes for private traffic at the moment and it might be reduced down to one. What will the knock-on effect of that be for the likes now of, you know, um, for buses? There's, there's there's a few areas where bus routes are going to be have to be rerouted and renegotiated. So they're looking at and exploring some of those issues at the moment. So, for example, a counterflow bus lane to Wine Tavern Street um, would take some of the bus capacity out of College Green and allow for a gradual increasing in the pedestrian and the cycling space there. Um, so bus routes will, will probably have a, a slight rerouting involved in them. But the idea of it is to allow people to safely use the buses um, at an appropriate capacity um, while also allowing for other, other forms of transport to flow. What do you expect the reaction, Janet, um, to this to be? I think there'll be two reactions. I think there's some, there's some reasonable concerns about what they, how this will look in practice. Um, but I think overall, one of the things we've seen over the last few weeks is a lot of people back out on bikes. Um, young people... A lot of women I know who would have said previously they would have never wanted to cycle in Dublin because it's too dangerous with so much traffic and they've taken up cycling in recent weeks with the quieter roads. And I think people are really want to hold on to that and they, they don't want to go back to a situation where the roads are so dangerous that they can't safely get out on their bike and get into work or get into the city or go to visit a relative. Um, so I think a lot of people are very keen to see these kind of changes in the city anyway, to see safer streets, to see lower speed limits, and to have public space be somewhere that it's, it's comfortable and it's safe to be. So I think overall, people really welcome the direction we're moving in here. And I think there's, but I, th- I do think there will be some practical concerns about how this, what mm-hmm. the, what the practical impact of this will be yeah. um, in certain areas. Yeah, and let's just maybe discuss some of those kind of practical concerns because one of the things that sort of strikes me is that like for anyone I know that's talking about going back to work over the coming weeks and I myself who always would have either used public transport or walked or got a taxi um, I'm now driving to work and it's something I, n- I never did before but most people I know Janet are talking about the fact that they're probably going to start driving even when they didn't which to my mind would mean that there's going to be even more cars on the road. And I think that's the that's the hard reality that we face. We we can't have, a, like, we just don't have the capacity for everybody to get back into their cars. So we do need to try to provide them with an alternative at the moment. Um, I think people are right to want to avoid public transport. 
where possible while we're still very concerned about the transmission of the virus. Um, but we don't, it, the, the whole city will grind to a halt instantly if we, if we have those 116,000 people that are previously using public transport to get in and out of the city every day driving in, in what it tends to be single occupancy private vehicles. We have to find an alternative. We can't, we can't deal with the, the levels of air pollution. We can't deal with the congestion. There has to be an alternative. The alternative that we have that is the most cheap, the most economical, is to give over the space to walking and cycling and make it as easy and as safe um, and as straightforward as possible for as many people to take that option. And it won't be for everybody, but it is, it is. What we need to see is wherever possible, particularly those who would like to cycle, but for who it's always been too dangerous, that it is now the easy, safe option for them to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, just on this suggestion about, you know, kind of cycling and getting more people back out on bikes and that forming a part now of there being a greater increase in usage by um, cyclists post-COVID-19, is it time to maybe start looking at rolling out more of the um, the cycle stations that we have, the kind of the go bikes across the city centre? I think we need to look at a, a whole range of alternatives. I think what we're, what we're seeing from Dublin City Council here, and I'm really delighted to see that they're really taking a leadership role in this. I think there's a load of new and different types of ways that we can support safer walking and cycling environment. I think increasing the number of stations in London, they're looking at rolling out um, e-scooters a lot more so that people can use them as a, as a form of transport that if that's more suitable to them than cycling. Um, I'd love to see more government incentives, more support for students and um, for people in retirement perhaps for to be able to access e-bikes or mobility aids or whatever it might be that is appropriate to them. They're currently under the pretty limited conditions of the Bike to Work scheme. They just wouldn't be able to get that, that kind of support. So I think, I think an increase in Dockless bikes in the Dublin bike scheme is one very practical measure we could be looking at at the moment. And I think there's a range more that will have to come from businesses, whether that's supporting their workers with showers, with maybe even financially incentivizing them to cycle, um, and from the government in terms of maybe re-looking at what the terms and conditions of the bike to work scheme are as well. Could you clarify something for us, Janet? Will the public be consulted on this plan or will it just be rolled out? There's kind of an ongoing consultancy aspect to it. So because these are emergency measures, um, we, there's not, we're not going through the same Part A planning process that the council might normally do. But um, what is happening is that the council have offered an ongoing input and feedback mechanism so that people can recommend the spaces that they want to see, see improved and changed. I know I've been contacted constantly over the last few weeks by constituents looking for um, changes and improvements to walking and cycling in their area um, and all of that is feeding into what the what the council are doing and it is it will be reviewed and um, as a member of the transport SBC we'll be meeting in June to discuss this in a little bit more detail um, but it's not it's not kind of what the consultation might normally look like with the council but it is there is an open feedback input mechanism in place mm-hmm. so so people will be able to give their views on this there and you can Dublin City Council website even you can you can go in and you can put in what the areas are and of course like people are contact, contacting their representatives all the time to kind yeah. of give their give their insight and feedback as well. Just clarify again, Janet. Sorry, the timeline for this. It's an ongoing process, so I'm I'm not even sure myself now what the timeline is. But I think we're looking at some of the measures we've already seen around NASA Street um, with the counterflow cycle lane put in place there. 
um, at a, a few Camden Street we've seen uh, Westmoreland Street, but um, the rest of the the measures are going to be rolled out over the coming months, weeks, months as as soon as possible, really. And um, then I would hope to see that we will still be rolling this into September, for example, when we're hoping to see schools back, and I'm hoping we might see some concentrated action around um, schools, where where a lot of the time this is one of the major pressure points for parents is they feel they have to drive the kids to school because there isn't a safe alternative and that we can really look at providing those safe alternatives when, if and when schools are returning in September. Okay. Just actually on the alternative point, like we have the bike to work scheme. Do you think, are there enough incentives and initiatives out there at the minute, Janet? No, I think the bike to work scheme is far too limited. It, it is a scheme that works for mainly high income earners and only people in steady employment. We need to see things that are going to allow students to to access bikes in an in a cheap way um, I would love to see people in retirement I've been approached by a lot of people in retirement who'd love to be accessing e-bikes so that they can comfortably um, get around their communities um, I think we need to to look at kind of alternatives for where people are in maybe more precarious employment and the bike to work scheme isn't accessible to them so there's a range of different different people who are very excluded from the bike to work scheme at the moment and I think that it would be really important that we, we look at different incentives and different mechanisms that can access a much wider cohort of people um, and get, you know, the, what the beautiful scenes we've seen in the city in the last few weeks of like children up on their bikes um, and those are the scenes we want to see and we want we want a city that is safe for children to, to access and to use um, but that does mean supporting them um, to have bikes and to have safe safe facilities they can use as well. Yeah. Just on an entirely separate point, um, just this week on board Planola approved plans for a new greenway as well, Janet, in North Dublin. I think it's the cycling and walking track and it'll kind of link the Malahide and Donabate areas. Just What's your view on that? Um, I'm, I actually am not familiar with that, but I, I, I mean, there's been a lot of pro- progress on greenways and supporting sort of people off route walking and cycling facilities I think they're really positive I think we just need to be very careful in distinguishing between what is maybe a tourism facility versus maybe what is actually supporting people to move around and I think what we need to be looking at at the moment is far more about what how people are moving to work or getting to school um, and going about their business rather than thinking that investing in cycling is is the same as maybe investing in tourist facilities for mm. cycling. Okay. We'll leave it there for the moment. My thanks to Green Party councillor in Dublin's North Inner City and also formerly of the Dublin Cycling Campaign, Janet Horner. If you're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme, we'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. Well, you're very welcome back to this week's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We are continuing our discussion, asking how can we make it easier and safer for people to shop and to trade and for transport providers right around the city centres post-COVID-19. Well, joining us in the programme is the Director for Consumer Affairs with AA Roadwatch, Connor Faulkner. Connor, just first of all, your assessment. We've been talking um, about traffic and how to maybe ease congestion over the past, I think, uh, two years on this programme. But... Um, we finally found a solution in, in the most bizarre way. Yeah, isn't it great? You, you can thoroughly improve your, your carbon emissions and your air quality and you completely remove the traffic problem. All you have to do is stop the economy catastrophically. Um, and that's what's happened. You know, we've had a catastrophic stop in the economy. Uh, pressure has eased on every piece of infrastructure. And, you know, there are people who are 
uh, you know, almost literally having picnics in Phoenix Park and in city centre. And you even have some people saying, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could be like this all the time? And, you know, maybe it would. Uh, but in the very short term, we're going to need our economy back. Um, it's it's what pays for everything that we count when we measure quality of life, everything from you know, health service to education to infrastructure itself. It's clear we've got to get back to work. I think, Andrea, it's clear also that we are coming back to work. You can see traffic volumes picking up again. Oh, we, we, yeah. we've been, oh it's definitely there. Yeah, we've we've been tracking it really since the beginning of the outbreak. And um, you know, initially in the first phase of lockdown, there was you know complete stop, virtually nothing moved. Um, it has picked up steadily really since Easter, and the last uh, uh, landmark was the 18th of May. Traffic has certainly increased again since then. So I think we are sort of nudging our way back towards something a little bit closer to normal, uh, but still a long way from it. And it still does give us glimpses of, of how free our cities can be uh, if if not burdened with traffic. So it really does sort of dramatise how big a challenge traffic is. We had some interesting research carried out this week um, by Professor Brian Caulfield in Trinity College Dublin at the School of Engineering. And um, we heard from Brian a little bit earlier in the programme. Some of the stats he pointed out, like, for instance, last year, you know, about 25% of people said they would be strongly in favour of working from home. How that's increased now to nearly 80%. But he also talked about the number of people as well, um, Connor, who would be concerned about going back to using public transport. Is now, yeah. the, is now the time to maybe re- look at road space and how that space is used yeah maybe we'll, we'll probably have to do some temporary arrangements because there's something decidedly odd that's going to happen when people return to work on this on the 8th of june we'll have more people encouraged to use their private car and travel in their private car on their own which is really wasteful from a traffic point of view and we know that people are going to be doing that because they have a twofold concern about public transport one is the virus concern you know, there will be a nervousness there about people catching the illness. And the other thing is that public transport capacity is going to be dramatically reduced because you can only get smaller numbers of people on buses. Mm. So if you think about a normal day in Dublin, you know, back when pre-COVID, when everything is just normal in Dublin, we've got about 300,000 people coming into the city centre, sorry, about 200,000 people coming into the city centre every day to commute. Of those, about 50% are coming in by public transport and we know that public transport's completely full carrying them. There isn't a spare seat to be had. The Lewises are jammed, the Darts are jammed, the buses are jammed. And that collective effort just about carries half of the people coming in to commute. And the other half have to do something else. You've got some in cars, you've got some cycling, you've got some walking, you've got some people making other arrangements. But public transport can only take half when times are good. And if we have a situation where we try to get back to normal working, but public transport capacity because of COVID is severely restricted and you need five buses to do the job that one bus was doing beforehand, um, well then, frankly, we're, we're, we're in a mess. I mean, one of the things that struck me in this report is that 32% of people said that they would walk to work more often now as a result of the um, COVID-19 pandemic because they're concerned about contracting the disease. Is now the time to start pedestrianising more spaces, Connor? Um, I think there's an opportunity to pedestrianise, yes. I, I think the cities are going to be a little different, at least in the short term, while COVID and social distancing are still with us. Uh, while COVID and social distancing are still with us, public transport is really going to struggle because it just doesn't have the capacity, even at the best of times. Should we pedestrianise more? 
Um, it's lovely. I mean, the pedestrianisation certainly enhances the quality of the streetscape. There's lots and lots of good reasons why we should do it. Um, so I would think yes, if we can. And certainly we should be investing more in uh, cycle lanes and, and providing more cyclist facilities because that's the one transport mode in this crisis that really could shine and, and really could have an opportunity. But in the long term, though, look, it would be terrific to live in a city that was wholly pedestrianised and, you know, beautiful quality of life. And you could have a picnic on O'Connell Bridge. And, you know, that's that's lovely. But the problem is we just don't have the transport capacity to do that unless we hollow out the city in its entirety. The city's biggest challenge is, is not that motorists are selfish and it's not that traders are selfish. It's that we don't physically have public transport capacity. And I know I say this all the time, but it continually rotates back to that. If you provide public transport that can actually move the masses when they're commuting, then it's liberating. Then you can pedestrianise, then you can do wonderful things. But if you don't have that capacity, if you've got no way to get people into the city centre, um, then if you block off roads, you just you just push people out. You hollow out the city centre, you create traffic jams in the suburbs, etc. You damage commerce in the city centre. It, it, it's, it's a balance. You know, nobody likes traffic congestion, nobody likes crowded darts and buses, uh, but we all want a city economy and um, you know, it, 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 D- Dublin city centre is a, a major engine of the Irish economy we, we, we can't do without it and we can't do without the transport so, needs okay, So what's, what's the solution then Connor? Well there are a couple of things that are coming out of this Covid thing that I think <clears throat> will be long term benefits to us. One of them you alluded to Andrea, I think home working you know, most of us were sort of vaguely aware that you could do it. Some of us might have done it from time to time, and then suddenly we're all doing it. I think we'll bring some of that with us. And if you can imagine, if, if on average, uh, the, the, the office worker in the centre of Galway or Cork or Dublin uh, chose to work at home one day a week in the post-COVID world, uh, that takes down commuting volumes by 20%. So there's enormous potential for homeworking to to ease the pressure on our transport. And I think, you know, a lot of people will find that attractive and it could work very well. The other thing I think is cycling. Now, you know, often people throw their eyes up to heaven when I mention cycling because it doesn't feel like a big strategic thing. But cycling can really, really help. And I think the COVID emergency has brought a lot of people onto bikes who haven't cycled in years and they realise they can do it. And the other point I would make about that is the arrival of e-bikes, electric bikes and assisted bikes, means that you've tripled the number of people who can actually use a bike to get to work. You might be somebody who is living I don't know, six or seven kilometers away. And if you're not, you know, if you're not the fittest person in the world, you're not going to cycle into your desk. But an e-bike means you can. So I think we need to be investing in things like uh, cycle lanes, which have potential to perform you know, way above their cost in terms of improving the situation. And I think home working as well. But listen, long term, you know, for as long as I've been commenting on this, Andrea, the solution, if there is one, if you want a silver bullet, it is the provision of large scale mass public transport in our cities. Okay. Uh, Galway doesn't have a Lewis, uh, Cork doesn't have a Dart, uh, Dublin doesn't have a Metro. Um, and while those things continue to be true, we've been talking about it for 30 years, we haven't done anything about it. And while those continue to be true, then those will continue to be congested cities. And, you know, there's no point people pretending that it's the fault of selfish motorists or if we only banned cars or taxed them or if we only pedestrianised this street or that street. No, no. You can't do it unless you provide public transport. If you, if you, if you want people in your city centre, 
there has to be transport. And if you don't provide transport, you're going to be in a mess. Okay. And that, sure enough, is where we are. Director of Consumer Affairs with AA, Conor Faulkner, my thanks to you for joining us on the programme. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. If you've missed any of the programme, you can download the podcast on our website at newstalk.com or on the Go Light app. My thanks to the production team, Simon Keane and Stephen Jordan. I'll be back again with Between the Lines this time next week. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day. 